Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, verse 37. And please stand with me for the reading of the word. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, every one whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you that this is indeed inspired by your Holy Spirit to bring us and draw us into your truth. We pray that we would be duly touched by these words this morning. We recognize that we are in desperate need of your Holy Spirit if we are to understand and apply the scriptures to our lives and be changed by them. So we pray that your spirit would be pleased to be present with us, to move through us, to teach us and guide us. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. You may be seated. In this section of Acts chapter 2, if you recall from uh, last week's sermon, Peter has just preached a powerful sermon on the day of Pentecost after uh, God has poured out his Holy Spirit and demonstrated his pouring out with many wondrous signs and wonders. And at the conclusion of his sermon, Peter says these words, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, that's Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. What a powerful conclusion. Talk about a guy not pulling punches. It seems there would have been a more acceptable way to be a little bit more tactful in this and a little bit more careful in how he worded this, but he worded it very directly. This Jesus, whom you despised, whom you rejected, whom you crucified, Christ, our God has made both Lord and Christ. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? This is the spirit at work in the sermon that Peter had preached. I am keenly aware of the necessity of the Holy Spirit to attend any sermon I try to preach. 
First of all, because I'm not as intelligent as many others, because I'm not as gifted as many others, and therefore I know I feel even greater burden, the weight of the necessity of the Holy Spirit to be here. We need the third person of the Trinity to move through the Word of God to touch and affect the hearts and lives and minds of people in such a powerful way. He ends on what seems like a somewhat accusatory note, and the response is overwhelming. Instead of rising up in indignation and saying, how dare you accuse us? How dare you bring this to our eyes? I have to wonder if there wasn't some sense of people here who were present when Christ was crucified. Now, there were a great number, as Luke tells us, that were gathered from throughout the Roman world. But perhaps some of those who were present were there when Christ was crucified. Perhaps some of them were present and cried out with the chief priests and Pharisees, Away with this man! Crucify him! Let his blood be upon us and our children! And the Holy Spirit, working through Peter as he preached this sermon, touched and affected these hearts in such a dramatic way that they felt the awful ignominy, the shame of what they had done. They had betrayed their only Lord. They had claimed for centuries and millennia that they had been looking forward to the coming of Messiah. And when he had finally come, they had despised and rejected him and called for his brutal execution. And how many of them are deeply convicted at this point? What have I done? I share in the guilt of shedding innocent blood. But lest we sit here today and think, well... That's them, thankfully it's not me. Remember why Christ died. He died for my sins. He died for what I have transgressed against God. And how I have committed iniquity. And therefore, I share in that same guilt and shame that sat upon them. It moved them to such a powerful way that they cry out, what must we do? I can almost see them because it says Peter preached the sermon, but they're calling out to all the apostles. What must we do? I can almost see them trying to grab a hold of them if they can. What are we going to do? Our case is most desperate. You have preached and you have shown us. The illness. You have shown us the result of the illness. But what are we going to do to be cured from this illness? How can we be saved? I'm reminded of the Apostle Paul many chapters later when he was in Philippi and imprisoned falsely. And as he and Silas were in chains and praising God in the midnight hour, then the Lord came and shook the place with a great earthquake and set all the prisoners free. And the jailer rushed in, assuming that they had all escaped. And knowing that the uh, punishment for, for allowing them all to escape would be his own death, and no one would ever believe that there was a mighty earthquake and they had all managed to escape miraculously, he drew his own sword to slay himself, to end his own life. And Paul said, put away your sword, we're all still here. As a child, I remember wondering about that. How did Paul keep everybody there? They probably heard him and Silas praying 
and singing songs and praising God and realized that that was directly connected to the earthquake. And anybody who can pray down an earthquake, you might want to say and listen to what he has to say. So they stayed and remained. And then the Philippian jailer was even more terrified. It's one thing if they had all escaped, but here they are staying. And he falls down before Paul and grabs a hold of him. What must I do to be saved? What a wonderful thing to be so convicted by the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ that one sees his or her own neediness, emptiness, becomes keenly aware that there is nothing good within me, as we confessed from the Heidelberg Catechism this morning. There is nothing good in me. I am prone only to evil. And I desperately need someone to come and be my Savior. And they cry out, what shall we do? This is a genuine mark of the beginnings of the fruit of repentance. I acknowledge that I have sinned. I acknowledge that what you're preaching is true. Now I'm desperately looking for some hope of escape. And Peter gives it to them. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Isn't this a remarkable word, repent? It's a word that we don't hear quite enough of today in the modern church in America. Did you know what John the Baptist's first message was when he began his earthly ministry? Repent. For the kingdom of God is at hand. You know what Jesus Christ's first message was when he began his ministry? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. It all begins with repentance and faith. One must be awakened to the fact that I have sinned. I have, I have offended a holy God, not just a holy God, a thrice holy God. And as such, I am deserving of his judgment and his wrath. And if he were to pour it up, up, up upon me, I could not complain of any type of injustice whatsoever because it is fully deserved and merited on my part. I have earned every bit of it and more. But because there is some impetus within me longing for self-preservation and for some hope, is there any? And when the message of hope is preached, then to turn from the sins and turn to Christ and look to the cross and look to Him as your only hope of salvation. This is the gospel message. Repent. Turn from that which you have been doing and look to Christ, the only one in heaven or in earth who can possibly deliver you from your sinful condition. What can wash away my sins? It's still true. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So he says, repent and be baptized. Now, why does he bring up baptism at this point? Well, baptism is important because, first, it's one of the sacraments. God hasn't just given us sacraments because we have a religion and we have need of certain rites and rituals if we're going to have a religion. God has given them to us because they have importance and meaning to us. Through the sacraments, God conveys grace. They are a means of grace. And through the sacraments, he portrays with outward visible signs an inward reality and seals or confirms the faith to our hearts. Repent, look to Christ, and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. The outward washing symbolizes the inward cleansing, just as in the Old Testament, circumcision, the cutting away the 
flesh symbolized the removing of our flesh so that we might live wholly unto God. And so marked the descendants of Abraham as a covenant people belonging to the Most High God. So baptism symbolizes the washing away of our sins. The removing of the flesh symbolizes a cleansed heart. And becomes a seal or confirmation of our faith when we say that we indeed trust in nobody but Jesus Christ to save us. Our sins are forgiven in Him, have been washed away. And so the outward sign is provided to confirm in our hearts that inward reality. Be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit just as we have. Notice this, for the promise is for you. And for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. The promise that God has made to be a covenant people and to call out for himself, or to have a covenant people and to call out for himself a people from this earth, extends to you, to your children, and to those who are far off. There are several things I thought are noteworthy about this. First of all, the promise is for you. This is a promise that you can appropriate. This is a promise that you can lay hold of. This is the hope that we are in covenant with the Most High God. The Bible ends with the picture of the New Jerusalem, the city of God, the bride of Christ descending from heaven to the earth. And the fulfillment of that great promise that permeates the Old Testament I will be your God, and you shall be my people. And the dwelling place of the Most High God will be with his people. This is the great hope running throughout the Old and New Testaments alike, that one day God himself shall make his full abode with his people. And this promise extends to you and to your children, forgiveness of sins and adoption into the family and grafting into the body of Christ a vital union with Jesus himself can only come about through the work of the Holy Spirit fulfilling that promise in your lives. But then it extends to your children as well. I was not raised in a Presbyterian church. I was raised as a Baptist and as such, of course, I, I didn't believe in infant baptism. I remember when I talked to a former pastor here, he came to visit us after we started joining the church. And I said, well, there's some couple of things I won't be able to agree to. One of them is infant baptism. He said, that's fine. You can still join our church and worship with us. We're, we're happy to have you. And he let me go on talking about my children being born. And I mentioned my first daughter, Ashley. And I said, when when I first held that little baby, I was so keenly aware of how deeply I wanted that child to be in heaven one day. Now, the great weight and responsibility that God had placed into my arms to train this child up to fear him. And we got home the very next night from the hospital, and I walked outside, and she was a tiny infant. She couldn't understand a word I had said. But I looked up to the sky, and I told her, Ashley, I said, up there beyond the stars is a place called heaven. In that place is a being called God. I'm going to do everything in my power by his grace to teach you about him. To train you to fear him. And to pray for your salvation and conversion. 
pastor let me go on and on, and they stopped and said, well, that's what we do. We just add the sign. <laughs> that stuck with me. For the next few years, I began to think upon that. And I realized I believe in the covenant. I believe that my children are part of the covenant with me. That God is a God not just for me, but for my household. That he will not just save me, but he will save my family as well. This is for you and for your children. And then finally to all those who are far off. Mention the Gentiles, the bringing in of nations, tribes, and tongues, and all kinds of people from across the globe to come into this glorious covenant relationship with the God of Israel. Have you ever thought sometimes it's really nice to read about the promises of God, but how do I know for certain that they apply to me? There are places in Scripture where God, I think, hints that, yes, this all applies to you as well. I remember I was struggling with this one night, and I was like, I can understand that Paul was saved. I can understand that John was saved. I can understand that these great heroes of mine were saved. But can I truly be saved? Can God truly draw me into heaven? If only I had a sure word. If only I had some firm confidence and hope. And as providence would have it, I was reading through the gospel of John, and I came to John 17, and those words just leapt off the page at me, where he said, I pray not just for these, but for all of those who shall believe upon the word which they shall preach. I was like, wait a minute, I believe upon that word. There's Jesus praying directly for me, recorded in sacred scripture. Here it is again, to all those who are far off. Do you think we're far off? Yes, by time and distance, both. And yet the promise is as certain for us as it was for them on that day. The same Holy Spirit is still at work in the world, changing and confirming hearts, drawing people unto himself. The same Holy Spirit that moved through Peter so mightily that day is at work today as well in the world. And this also brings up the sovereignty of God and salvation, whom the Lord our God calls to himself. This is the special call by which God moves upon the heart and says, come and follow me. And with many other words, I like this. We're going through the book of Acts also in our care group. And there's a later on when Paul is uh, speaking to a group of people as he's about to leave and go to Jerusalem and Luke emphasizes that it took him some time to finish the sermon. <laughs> so long that one young man fell asleep in the window, fell out of the window and died and had to be resurrected from the dead. We should be patient in hearing the word of God. We should long after it. This should be our food and our meat and our drink. We should long to draw more of this into ourselves. With many other words, he spoke to them. And what did he warn them? He continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. The world has such an attraction to us. We long after this world, and we want to fit in. We want to be a part of this world. But this is a crooked generation. Jesus said, I am not of this world, even as you are not of this world. That always strikes me. I don't know if you've noticed the bumper stickers or window stickers that some people place in their cars that has this in very stylized form, N-O-T-W. And it stands for not of this world. 
Every time I see one of those, it's just a sharp reminder to me. I don't belong here. This isn't my home. My citizenship is in heaven. I am looking for another country, as the writer of Hebrews talks about. Another city. This is not the place of my abode. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Yes, you can fit in for a time. You can try to find all the merriment you can. You can try to squeeze out all of the joy and pleasure you can from sin and from this present life. But this life will, sh- will soon be past. It will shortly come to an end. And those of you who are young say, no, it's very long. But ask those of us with a little more gray hair on our heads. Yes, I have a few. But ask those of us with a little more gray hair on our heads about how long life is. And we'll tell you, it goes by all too quickly. Seems like when I hit 30, somebody turned the speed dial up to 2. And things went twice as fast. Life goes by too quickly. And if you're going to live only for this world, then you will surely perish with this world. So save yourself now, today, while there is still time from this crooked generation. Look to Christ. So those who received the word and were baptized were added to that day were about 3,000 souls. Calvin wrote upon this text, and I think it's worth noting, for although we do not receive it, that is the gift of the Spirit, that we may speak with tongues, that we may be prophets, that we may cure the sick, that we may work miracles, yet it is given to us for a better use that we may believe with the heart unto righteousness, that our tongues may be framed unto true confessions, that we may pass from death to life, that we, which are poor and empty, may be made rich, that we may withstand Satan and the world stoutly. In this wondrous outcome, the Holy Spirit moves so mightily that about 3,000 souls, men, women, and children, came to saving faith that day, under the ministry of the word, through the Holy Spirit. So in the first section, we see the Spirit in the sermon. Calvin also wrote in talking about the the 3,000 souls, because I think we need to make sure we have an application of this text to ourselves as well. And this I found very poignant and sharp. Furthermore, the example ought to make us not a little ashamed, for whereas there was a great multitude converted unto Christ with one sermon, and a hundred sermons can scarce move a few of us. And whereas Luke says that they continued, there is scarce one among ten that shows even a mean or common desire to profit and go forward. Yes, rather, the more part soon loathes our doctrine. So, very good reminder, if 3,000 were moved, we should be moved as well under the preaching and ministry of the Word of God, attended by His Holy Spirit. And then we come to the next section. And as I was thinking through the sermon, I was thinking, what's the sort of the, the, the nexus here between these two passages? Uh, if you're looking at your Bibles, likely there's a division here. It says, in mind, the fellowship of the believers as a a title for the next section. So what's sort of the nexus here? Well, I thought about it. Well, the first part is really the Spirit and the sermon and how the Holy Spirit worked in changing hearts and lives and drawing people into himself. And then this part shows how that's worked out in the lives of these people who have been changed. The Spirit at work in the saints. 
So he says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So there are four things that, the, that Luke lists here that mark the church at this point. The apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, should hope all four, and, and, uh, and prayers. So first of all, the apostles' teaching. We need to seek out and hang on to sound doctrine. I've heard it said doctrine divides. It does. It divides between the goat and the sheep. Doctrine does divide. But doctrine is absolutely critical. Paul tells Timothy to, to, be, to make sure that he preaches sound doctrine. He tells him to hold on to that sound doctrine. He says to remember the word that he has known from his youth up. For is able to make you wise unto salvation. What is the apostles' teaching? It is, it is composed here in our New Testament scriptures. This is the apostles' teaching. And this is what they held on to. They were often listening to the apostles and learning from the apostles about who God was, who Jesus Christ is, how they've affected their lives, the importance of sanctification and growing in grace and doing what they should do now because they have been changed by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. They needed constant reminders from the apostles. And we are to be pitied. If we neglect the scriptures, if we turn away from the apostles' teaching, if we, if we instead embrace novelties and new ideas instead of that good old-fashioned faith that is the faith of our fathers. Hold firmly to that sound doctrine that you have been taught. Hold firmly to what the apostles taught. And then the next thing is fellowship. They continued in fellowship. And fellowship is a little more than just having a cookie in the foyer and and talking about how your week went uh it's it's deep intimacy it's a relationship that's been developed where people get to know each other and care for each other and pray for each other and and carry each other's burdens they continued in fellowship and we'll see this lived out in a few verses later so i'll mention more of it there the breaking of bread likely this is the uh, sacrament of the lord's supper uh bible scholars and theologians have debated whether it's just the common sharing of meals, I think that occurs later on. I think I side more with those who believe that this is actually the, the Lord's Supper as one of the marks of the church, the breaking of bread. Henry wrote upon this, Matthew Henry wrote upon this, the Lord's Supper is a sermon to the eye and a confirmation of God's words to us and is an encouragement to our prayers and a solemn expression of the ascent of our souls to God. In the Lord's Supper, we are able to see visibly portrayed before us that Christ is indeed our food and our drink spiritually. Through the broken bread and through the cup, we partake of Christ. We feed upon him because he supplies life to us spiritually. And then finally, the last one in prayers. How can we say enough about prayer? And the importance and the integral part it plays in our lives. We should be a praying people. Because it's mentioned here in the, the context of the church meeting together. This likely has a reference to public prayers as well as private prayers. So not just prayers in one's home. But prayers in public as well. 
how it does us good to join together as brothers and sisters in Christ and cry out to God on behalf of one another. The result, awe came upon every soul, probably not just every soul in the church, but souls outside the church as well as they wondered about what was going on. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. This is critical here. Allow me to step a little bit into politics just for one moment. And the only reason I do that is because this ver verse has been taken out of context. And we need to explain what it isn't so that we can explain briefly what it is. This is not Marxism, an early form. This is not the state coming in and taking away everything and making sure that all people are laid low and equalized. If you think that, then you have misunderstood the context altogether. And the beauty and wonder of this. This is, in fact, the fulfillment of Jesus' words or command. Love one another, even as I have loved you. It's a beautiful expression of love in action. Not just in words, but in action. Some had much. And they recognized that some in their assembly had very little. And they willingly gave charitably to those who had little to provide for their needs. This is a private person exercising private property rights to give up those rights and instead to care for the others. And we'll see this fulfilled out in coming chapters as well in the book of Acts. This is the hallmark of the Christian church, that they had love for one another, that they cared for one another, that they counted each other as truly brothers and sisters in Christ, one family and though they might have gathered there from nations, they believed in the same common Jesus Christ and shared with each other as they had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. As you read through this, we'll, we'll see later on that troubles do arise in the church. So it's not as though the early church was quite as pristine as we might sometimes picture it to be. And what a joy it would be to have lived in those times. The, the early church had struggles too. Later, Ananias and Sapphira lied to Peter and are divinely executed in front of them. Uh, later, there is a, a dispute that arises by the Hellenist Jews because their widows aren't being taken care of in the same manner that the Judaic Jews were. Paul and Barnabas have a great quarrel and end up splitting company. When Paul writes his letter to the Corinthian church, he rebukes all kinds of, all manners of evil and all kinds of things that are going on. But there's one thing you must see, the importance of, church and at this time in this this wonderful beautiful nativity of the church they are sharing goods together they are fellowshipping with one another they are sharing meals they are expressing love and concern and passion for each other the holy spirit is at work mightily in the church may he do the same in ours today